All right, open up your Bibles, Nehemiah chapter 5, Nehemiah chapter 5, and uh, I want to get us started by talking about a book that Daniel Coyle wrote several years ago, and it's called The Culture Code, very well-known book, probably several of you in business leadership circles read it. In the book, he, asked, he opens the book by asking this question. He says, what is it about some groups that the sum of their parts are greater that the the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. And what is it about groups where the whole is less than the sum of the parts? That was kind of the premise of the book. And then he said, he quotes a design engineer named Spillman who set out to do what he called a spaghetti experiment. So here's what Spillman set out to do. He got groups of people together, University at Stanford, University of California, University of Tokyo. He got folks together in groups of four. He got engineers, or he got lawyers, he got CEOs, he got business college students, and he got kindergartners together. And he gave them an assignment. They had 20 minutes to complete this task. They had 20 sticks of uncooked spaghetti, okay? They had about a yard of string. They had about a yard of, like, scotch tape. And they had a marshmallow, And here was the instruction. You have 20 minutes to build the tallest tower you can build. One rule, the marshmallow must go on top. Go. So all all these different settings, he had this experiment going on. You want to guess who came in dead last consistently? The CEOs get bashed a lot, but actually the business college students. Now, the CEOs weren't too far behind. The average business college student set went 10 inches high, 10 inches. You want to guess who dominated the scene? Kindergartners, just dominate. 26 inches was their average tower. Here's a picture of the first group he did, the kindergartners group right there. Now, Daniel Coyle in his book makes the observation. He says, quoting Spillman, Spillman said when he observed the the work going on, he says the CEOs and the lawyers and the business college students spent so much of their 20 minutes debating, discussing, strategizing, and planning, and jockeying, hear this, jockeying for status and position, that they didn't have much time to fail, because what they didn't realize was the marshmallow was heavier than anyone anticipated, so the first couple of times, it's an utter failure. Well, the kindergartners, they didn't spend their time jockeying for position and debating all the kinds of theories. They just started at it. And so they had a number of times to fail, which allowed their towers to be quite a bit larger. And then at the conclusion of this, he makes uh, the statement. I think I may have put it in your notes there. This is what Daniel Coyle says at the conclusion of it. He says, the kindergartners succeed not because they are smarter, hear this, but because they work together in a smarter way. Now, it's not obviously a group of kindergartners isn't more intellectually intelligent about how to go about the project. They just go about the project in a smarter way. So church, if you're leading in any sphere, if you're leading at home, you're leading in the marketplace, you're leading at school, you're leading in church, you're leading in the community, if you're leading in any kinds of, when you set your hands to the plow of leadership in any capacity, you're going to be tasked with how to get groups of people to work together in a smarter way. 
Or to say it another way, you're going to have to keep working and reworking, shaping and reshaping the culture upon which this group of people works. Because as Daniel Coyle says, what determined more than anything else, the environment of people working together in a smarter way was the cultural dynamics in which they worked. And this is where Nehemiah finds himself in Nehemiah chapter 5 today. Nehemiah is in the middle of his own spaghetti experiment, okay? He's got a lot going on. It's a little more complex than 20 pieces of uncooked spaghetti. He's got two miles of wall, about 50 feet high, about 12 to 15 feet thick. And as we've seen over the last few weeks, he's got a fair amount of opposition coming at him. He's not lacking for lawyers and CEOs and business college students to give him input on how things ought to be done. Some of it's helpful, much of it not so helpful. And this is like every Tuesday for Nehemiah right now. And so Nehemiah is tasked, as we're going to see today, he's thrust into an environment where he sees things within his own circle, within the Israelite family, he sees some cultural shifts going on, and as a leader, he has to step forward, and as I entitled today, he's got to reset the culture of the heart the way God wants it set. And we're going to see it through three things in the text today. We're going to see him responding thoughtfully, not reacting impulsively. To the circumstances. Secondly, we're going to see him deciding what's not going to be tolerated. And thirdly, we're going to see him committing and asking the people to commit to a new direction. So responding, deciding, and committing to set a culture of the heart. Look at Nehemiah 5, verse 1 to 4. Here's what's going on. He says, now the men and their wives raised a great outcry. Remember where we left them off? They're sleeping with their clothes on. They've got so much work going on. They've got so many enemies coming against them that they've got the work clothes on. They've got the sword by the bed. They've got half the people posted on the wall working, half of them posted defending. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their Jewish brothers. So this isn't external opposition. Now it's internal implosion happening. And they're saying this, we and our sons and our daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Verse 3, others were saying we're mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Notice famine. Still others were saying we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. So see some dynamics. There's kind of a perfect storm. Remember, there were 10,000 Israelites uprooted and deported over to Babylon 70 years earlier. So no doubt during the 70 years, the the numbers multiplied. It would be safe to assume tens of thousands returned from Babylon and began to resettle in the homeland of Israel. That put a strain on the food supply. It made it such that, you know, kind of inflation is spiking, demand is high, supply is low. They can't pay their basic grocery bills. Combined with, there's a famine in the land, so that's adding a layer of complexity. The last element of the perfect storm is Artaxerxes keeps jacking their tax rates. So tax rates are going up, and when they get to the end of the month, they're having to sell their family members or go deeper into debt in order just to make it month to month. And so this is the dynamic that Nehemiah has right in the middle of rebuilding this project. Now, we'll see what happens. Verse 6, when I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. Verse 7, underline, I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are exacting usury from your own countrymen. Now, usury is a Bible word which simply means charging exorbitant interest rates. 
Kind of like those uh, places that you drive by and you see like, okay, you can give your paycheck here and then you kind of get a return and the interest rates are like super high or it's the credit card statement where you go, you're never going to pay this off if you do the minimum balance. It's that kind of a situation with usury. So they're extracting interest at an exorbitantly high rate from with own their own countrymen. We'll come back to that. So I called them together and said, as far as possible, we have bought back our Jewish brothers who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you're selling your brothers only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. That's Bible language for they're feeling a bit convicted. It's like, uh, staring at their feet, not wanting to make eye contact on that one. It's like, ugh, found out. So, did you see, I had you underline Nehemiah's thrust into a moment to reset a culture with the people, and he responds thoughtfully. The word is ponder there. He doesn't react impulsively, though he was tempted. It says he's upset. So it's one, he's triggered, he's upset, he's frustrated about the dynamics, but the word ponder there is this idea of stepping back, pausing, reflecting, and thinking it through. A few weeks ago, I had this diagram in your notes. I'm bringing it back this week because I've been super challenged by this. I don't know about you, but it's the attention drain diagram. And I want you to think about this with, with Nehemiah now. So psychologists say that where ener energy flows, where attention goes. That's kind of a psychologist saying. Energy flows where attention goes. And so right here, that means this diagram ought to be a sobering thought in today's day and age where there's so much tugging at our attention. There's, I've got such a leaky vessel when it comes to my attention span. I've got so little reserved at times for the deeper work of, of what God wants done that's just drained away. And it's sobering to think that if energy goes where attention is, I was, oh boy, if energy flows where attention goes, that means I could spend my one and only life on stuff that really doesn't matter that much in the end. That's a sobering thought. It's not that it's stuff that's maybe not somewhat important. It's just not really eternally important. Is it going to matter 100 years from now? Probably not. And so this is the point. And I don't know about you, but I see a direct correlation between the leakiness of my attention. Here's a correlation. The leakiness of my attention and the impulsiveness of my reaction. So when the leakiness goes up, my impulsiveness goes up. Or to say it another way is the more attention I can channel, if I can stop up some of the leaky spots, if I can reserve more energy for the deeper work, I see a correlation between then having an ability with the help of God to pause, reflect, ponder, step back, think it through. If I could have a kind of a reservoir of attention stored up in the deeper work bucket, I'm able to in the midst of maybe emotionally charged situations or volatile circumstance, I'm able to step in there, and psychologists would say, differentiate yourself. You're able to step in, engage in a very difficult, emotionally charged, volatile situation, but hold on to your true self and your strength, and yet engage thoughtfully, thinking it through, rationally, prayerfully. This is what Nehemiah is doing. Now, he's upset. It's okay to be upset. Jesus models that in the New Testament. He's flipping over the money table because they turned the temple courtyard area into a fundraiser. He's upset. Says he gets upset and he starts calling the officials together. And so this is Nehemiah. He's upset, but he doesn't react impulsively. And I'm challenged by that. How about you? Could you imagine our world if we just move the needle a little bit on this issue? Could you imagine how different it would be 
if in all spheres of leadership, in our homes, in the workplace, in sports arenas, in political environments, in the marketplace, in church, in community settings, what if we just move the needle a little bit, a little less reacting impulsively and a little more responding thoughtfully? Boy, can you just picture how different, like some of you are under the gun on the work project and the pressure to produce and deliver, the date is breathing down your neck. What if that team came together and had a pondering, thoughtful response to the pressures you're under and not reacting? What's a different kind of project team? Or how about the city council meeting you're a part of and there's some charged issue on the agenda and everybody's all amped up about it? What if the leadership in that environment was able to ponder thoughtfully? Versus just responding and reactive impulsively. Or what if the community gathered could respond a little less reactively and impulsively? Can you imagine how different your HOA meetings would be? School boards, church stuff, sometimes in church environments, it's just, wow, there's just so much emote just reacting and just say, I'm challenged by Nehemiah, and I think the attention diagram pulls me into this space that says, hey, Simpson, what you need to do is pay attention because energy goes where attention is at. Like, where attention is flowing, energy is going. And so if I can maintain my attention and my focus around the things that are on God's heart, have his perspective, I'm able to then maybe, with the help of his spirit, step in like Nehemiah does and say, let's step back from this. Perhaps the comment section on social media would look different. It seems as if social media is like, is like a PhD for reacting emotionally charged way. Like reacting in emotion seems to be mostly social media commentary, which is why it's not always super healthy through that. But just how different it would be, what if in our settings, when we have an opportunity, that we're just really prayerful and thoughtful in how we respond and react into those situations. That's what Nehemiah is doing. And in his thoughtfulness, in his prayerfulness, in his thinking it through, in his frustration with the dynamics, he says, nobles and officials. So that's the Bible language. When he's nobles and officials is Bible language for the group of people who are supposed to be leading in such a way in the best, serving the people, the best interest of the people. That's what the nobles and officials, like they're supposed to be handling the situation within the community in the best interest of the people. So he gets them together and he says, hey, nobles and officials, we need to have a conversation. Because Nehemiah would have known very well, as the nobles and officials would have been raised to know very well. Exodus 22. Here's just three texts that Nehemiah would have had front burner that he probably had to remind them of it, but they would have known. But they're choosing not to follow. Exodus 22. If you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, do not be like a money lender. Charge him no interest. Deuteronomy 23. Do not charge a fellow Israelite interest, whether in money or food or anything else that may earn interest. Leviticus 25. No Jew was to ever enslave another Jew. So you see this? So he brings back three core texts from the book of the law that would have been raised since they were very young in the Hebrew tradition, nobles and officials, and he says, guys, here's in my pondering, in my reflecting, in my thinking this through, we've got a situation on our hands. We've got to step in and reset a cultural reality of the heart here for the people, which moves now into the second part. He's got clarity about what God wants done, and this moves him into deciding now what will not be tolerated. Look at verse 9. So here's what Nehemiah does, verse 9. So I continued, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? So I'm basically saying, hey, you're charging interest to your fellow Jew. 
Strike one, you're enslaving boys and girls as payment for the poor who can't cover their sins. Strike two, and you're taking advantage of the people instead of trying to help the people. Strike three, what you are doing is not right. From my experience, that's a really important part of setting organizational culture. It's an important part of being a leader, whether that's in a home, in the community, in a church, in a school, in a team. You have to, I think two elements that I see often is like what you tolerate and what you celebrate are a big part of culture. And here Nehemiah says, we've got some things, we need to reset the culture because there's some things we've begun to compromise and shade the lines on. We can't tolerate it anymore. It reminded me several years ago when Jeff Saturday was the center for the Colts. You remember when this was the scene that was showing up in your news feeds with Colts World all the time when you saw 18 and 63? Well, those were good days, weren't they? We won a lot of games, right? 115 games in a 10-year span. Probably never, never, nobody's ever won that much in a 10-year period of time in, in the NFL history. But these guys did. So I heard the story that we had been winning a lot of games, and we had one of those seasons where we had an extra number of injuries, and so they brought in a couple of what they're called veteran-free agents, meaning these guys had been around the league, they had been in a number of different teams, but we needed them brought in to kind of fill some gaps for us. So they were in our locker room, and Jeff kind of noticed that veteran free agents, because they've been around and they have experience, they kind of do their own thing, they kind of have their own ways. And they've been around some other locker rooms and adopted some other ways. Jeff watched this go on for about seven days. He watched these two veteran free agents doing their own thing, kind of doing it their own way. And then 63 walked across the locker room and went to their locker. And he pointed to the signs on the locker room wall. So Coach Dungy was our coach at that time, and on the locker room wall were four signs that represented setting the culture at that moment for the Colts. It was expectations, execution, no excuses, no explanations. Jeff pointed these signs out to these two guys and said, basically, this was a summary of Jeff's conversation with them as he recounted it to me. He's like, guys, I know you've been around. I know you've been in a lot of locker rooms. I'm sure a lot of this stuff is kind of how it rolls in other places. But I just want to be clear here, okay? When you put on the horseshoe, when you come to this organization, when you come to this locker room, when you put on this uniform, here's our expectations. Bang, 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 bang. This is how we roll. This is not how we roll. Am I clear? Crystal, I think, was the response. Crystal clear. How about that leadership? How about someone drawing a line in the sand? They'd only been locked for about seven days, but clearly they needed to be, hey, this, this is not how we roll around here. This is a line, like this is who we are, this is how we go about our business, this is how we handle ourselves. This is not who we are. I understand that might have been how it rolled in those other locker rooms. That's not how it rolls in this locker room. That's Nehemiah right now. Nehemiah's like, listen, guys, I know maybe over in Babylon some of this stuff was, but now we're back in the homeland, we're rebuilding the wall, we're reestablishing the temple, we're recentering ourselves back on God's purposes and God's ways. This is how we roll. And this is an important part of cultural setting, to say, hey, we've got to draw a line in the sand. This is who we are, this is what we're about, this is how we go about it. These are the lines we're not going to compromise in, like we're not going to tolerate these things. I think that's super important for a spiritual community. Like, as we navigate this cultural moment we're in, do you see why we keep bringing up this analogy that Philip Yancey brought up? He says the church, it can't be a mirror mirroring back the cultural values. It has to be a window into another world, another kingdom with another king. 
Like church, that's a cultural setting, that's a value setting statement. That's saying we want to be the kind of people who celebrate and lift up like consecration and presence over program and being a group of travailing prayer and believing that God can make a way, that there can be revival and awakening. We want to be a culture of disciple making. Like we want to celebrate that stuff and simultaneously we want to lovingly and graciously say, hey, we don't want to be about compromise. We don't want to build this on a base of prayerlessness. We don't want it to be about those things. We don't want to, re- we don't want to mirror back what's going on in the culture. We want to be able to stand with God's help to be God's people at this time and to consecrate our whole lives for the work that he wants to do right now in this moment. That's why I'm so encouraged. Can you imagine what might happen at Zionsville High School as six students get together and been to call in the name of the Lord? God comes where he's wanted. Zionsville High School, look out. I think the Spirit of God is coming. That's going to be a beautiful thing when that spirit is poured out and what happens. That's like normal Christian life in this 2023 era that we're in. So we're going to say, hey, you know, we're not going to tolerate compromise and casualness. We're going to celebrate consecration and wholehearted devotion and presence over program. That's, that's what we're doing. That's what Nehemiah's trying to do with the group. He's like, you guys have crossed over in some lines over here, pulling you back in. What you are doing is not right. If you're leading anything in any period of time for any length of time, you know you're going to have to have some conversations with those you are leading at some point that are in this space, hopefully done with love and grace and patience, but with clarity. Am I clear? Crystal, what you are doing is not right. So as he responded thoughtfully, didn't react, didn't react impulsively, he just said, you know, I need to think this through. He gets clarity about what God wants done. He steps forward, gets nobles and officials who are supposed to be the ones kind of leading and setting all this. He calls them, he says, hey, what you're doing, that's not right. And we got to get this reset. So from the responding to the deciding, and then this rolls us into the third element this morning, it's a committing. Do you see this in verse 12? Watch what happens. Here's what the people say. We will give it back. Wow. And we will not demand anything more from them. Wow. We will do as you say. Wow. Hey, leaders, how often does that happen with your teams? Three we wills. When you say, hey, by the way, that's, you know, maybe you had your project team meeting. It didn't quite come. It's like, hey, you had to sit down with that coworker and say it's not quite the standard where it needs to be. What a great day in the life of a leader. It's like three we wills. We'll give it back. We will not demand anything more. We will do as you say. Whew, that's a good day right there. You're going home with the worship music blasting on the way home that day. God is great. God is glorious. It's just quite rare, but it's possible. And that's what happens here. And notice Nehemiah, he calls again. He gets the priests together. Did you notice in the text, verse 12 and 13, look at that. He summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath <laughs> to do what they had promised. Now, why did he do that? Because he knew this. Hey, We're going to take an oath. We're going to get the priest. You're going to take this oath kind of before God. The priest represented God's presence there. You're going to make your oath before God. Because it's one thing to say you're all in and you're committed to some change when you're like in the meeting of confrontation. You're in the performance review and the boss is on you about some change. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hear you. I hear you. All right. I'm good about it. It's another thing when the income statement comes out at the end of the month and it looks drastically different because you stopped exacting usury from all your brethren. Now we're going to find out how committed you are. You see that? So he gets the priest together. He says, hey, you know what? Before God, you've got to say I'm all in. 
So he knows. He's thinking it out. He knows, hey, by the way, it's going to get real tough at the end of the month. It's one thing to say it on the 15th, come to the 30th and let's see how committed you are. So take an oath before the priests. And he says, verse 13, I shook out the folds of my robe and said, in this way, may God shake out of his house and possessions every man who does not keep this promise. So may such a man be shaken out and emptied. And this, the whole assembly said, amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Wow, this is an amazing text. Some of you in leadership roles, you just need to memorize this section right here. You need to keep this one on the dashboard. And look, the people did as they promised. The rebuilding project continued. They continued to press forward. The wall kept going up. But a cultural, right? The responding, the deciding, the committing. Right here, three words that reset the culture of the heart. Their spaghetti experiment needed to get recourt, like reset this way. And so Nehemiah, he brings them together. He says, hey, we got to get some things reset here. We're going to decide what we're going to decide we're going to tolerate and what we're going to celebrate. So worship team, come on back up. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to transition to communion. And I want us to reflect on a couple things as we do so. Because maybe this morning, you come in this morning, and maybe you're right in the middle of a Nehemiah 5 moment in your own life. I mean, for Nehemiah 5, remember, he, at the end of 4, he's sleeping with his clothes on. He's got all kinds of challenges going on with the opposition on the outside. He wakes up the next morning, and now he's got things coming at him on the inside. I mean, this some of you right there in your life right now where you go, the timing couldn't be worse. The circumstance couldn't be more challenging. You feel like your whole life is a giant spaghetti experiment right now. And so here's what I want to invite you to. Could it be today, could it be the Lord brought you here or wherever you're joining us online? Could it be that this is your moment where God's saying, hey, how about pausing? How about stepping back? How about reflecting? And what with God's help, let's think this through a little bit. Maybe this morning is God stepping in the way to say, hey, let's think this through. Don't react impulsively here. I know you're amped up about it. You don't have to live very far long in a Genesis 3 world to get charged up about something. That's like just every day these days, right? Some, something's going to ping you the wrong way and fallen sinful nature, fallen sinful world, real enemy against that. Like there's going to be things that are going to ping you the wrong way. So, okay, I know you're going to get pinged that way. Hey, pause, ponder, reflect, step back, think it through. Maybe that's for you this morning. Maybe you're facing something and you know you just need the wisdom of God to guide your steps. Or maybe, maybe you're here and Maybe through a sequence of events, you know, and you know the Lord knows, there's some stuff that's just been out of bounds, out of line. It's been in a place of compromise. You've crossed some lines. You know it. You know God knows it. And you've just kind of been rationalizing it, running from it, whatever. You've been like the nobles and officials, just going about it until now, maybe this morning, by the Holy Spirit, step, hey, what you're doing is not right. That needs to get set back in bounds. You can't tolerate that anymore. You can't cross those lines anymore. It's about whole, It's a call to holiness. It's a call to say, get this back the way the Lord wants it to be. Maybe that's this morning for you. Or lastly, in the committing, maybe it's something this morning where God's got you here. And maybe for you, it's a commitment to Christ for the first time. Maybe you've never given your heart to Jesus, and you can do that in just a few minutes. We're going to go to the communion tables. You can pray and receive Christ right now, receive communion for the first time. Or maybe for you, it's a committing or a recommitting yourself to the way of Jesus. Maybe you've gotten distracted, maybe the attention diagram, way too much drain's gone out, not near enough in the deeper work, and maybe this morning it's like the Lord's like, hey, let's recommit ourselves.
because energy flows with the attention. Go say, hey, my attention been all the wrong places. I need to reset. I need to recommit. I need to recenter myself because it's responding. It's deciding. It's committing. That's culture of the heart language. And so as we go to the communion table, I want us to do so kind of reflecting. I want you to think about when you hold these elements, I want you to think about all that Jesus accomplished in his responding. You know, Jesus is the ultimate one who sets the culture of the heart. These elements represent how he set the culture of the heart. When the Father sent the Son to this earth in a broken, dark world, how did Jesus respond to all that he was thrust into? Sacrificial love. Sacrificial love. What was the decision he kept making to give himself away? He laid his life down. He was beaten, mocked, crucified. Jesus just kept giving himself away, giving himself away, sacrificial love. And then his commitment was, not my will, but yours to be done, Father. So when you hold these elements, I want you to think about the culture of the heart Jesus models right here. The little cracker in here represents a body that was broken. The juice represents a blood that was shed. And the scripture says we're to do this act of worship. We internalize his life as an act of remembrance on this. And so as you take his life in, perhaps it's a culture of the heart setting moment. Maybe there's some responding to be done. Maybe there's some deciding to be done. Maybe there's some committing or recommitting to be done. You don't have to be a member of Eagle Church to take communion here, but you do need to be a follower of Jesus. And you do need to have examined your heart and say, you know what, I want to go Jesus' way with my life. doesn't mean perfectly, it just means your intent is to walk with him and honor him with your life. Those are the people who come to the communion table. And so the way we do it around here is we've got tables set up on the side. There's gluten-free options at the table on both sides. And we're just going to, in a moment, dismiss you. And you can gather friends, family, you can go alone. Or if you're not ready to receive communion, just stay in your seat, have a little quiet prayer, quiet space, and reflect on this. But as you hold the elements and as you take them together, I want you to think about what might happen with a group of people whose heart is set culturally on the way of Jesus. Can you imagine what the Lord might do? Let's pray together. Jesus, we worship you this morning. As we go to this table now, as we reflect on your response, on the decisions you made, on the commitment of surrender, that because you made a way, we have a way now to the table. And so if there's anyone here who's never said yes to Jesus right now in your heart, you can just cry out right where you're at, quietly in your heart, Jesus, save me. I confess my sin. I desperately need a Savior. Come and save me. Fill me with your spirit. I want to live for you. You just whisper that in your own words. Jesus, save me. I bring my sin to you. Bring your healing grace to me. And then maybe there's some others that's in a place of kind of recommitment. Maybe it's been, you've kind of been wandering, distracted in a lot of ways. Jesus, we just cry out. Would you just bring us back? We just want to come back wholeheartedly surrendered, attentive to you. Meet with us. Bring your healing grace to us, we pray.